Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. In this episode, we're speaking to Tom King, one of the founders and chief investment officer at Nanook Asset Management. We talked to Tom about their focus on impact or what might be known as ESG investing uh, in later days where they started out before that. We talk about the fund that he manages that's produced a compound annual return since inception back in 2015 of 10.6% per annum, outperforming the benchmark by a clear 200 basis points. Uh, Very interesting conversation with Tom. I love talking to these high performances. What you'll see is uh, before his 20 plus something career in financial markets, Tom was an outstanding sailor. And what you'll see uh, is that there's some absolute parallels in the thinking they're being able to uh, operate under pressure and make decisions where you don't have perfect information that are a lot of parallels between sailing and the role he does as Chief Investment Officer at Nanook. It's a great conversation with a high performer. Please enjoy this episode. Remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and remember that this isn't advice in the form of general or personal advice, people are always encouraged to make their own inquiries, read disclosure documents and receive advice. But they are, you are, one of the things you are to do is to keep that feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I love those emails telling us who are the leading minds in wealth management in your view that we can include in this podcast. Enjoy the episode and thank you goes to Tom Oriel, uh, who works with me in producing this podcast. And as always, to my son, uh, Josh Clark at Parakeet Productions for editing the episode. Thank you very much. Tom King, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks, David. Tom, perhaps you could, as we like to do on the podcast, is kick away by you giving yourself an introduction to the listeners. Who is Tom King? Well, Tom King is CIO, Chief Investment Officer of Nanook Asset Management, a Sydney-based or Australian-based global equities manager with a focus on uh, industries and technologies related to environmental sustainability and resource efficiency. And as a person, as an individual, what's your background? How would you describe yourself? Uh, Depends how far back you want to go. I grew up in Melbourne. I'm an engineer by training. I worked in industrial consulting for a while, but uh, back at that part of my life, I was also in international sports. I sailed at an international level Went to two Olympic Games, won a gold medal in the Sydney Olympics, uh, and then moved into um, initially consulting, but then quite quickly into finance about 20 years ago. Uh, Worked in private equity and investment banking, uh, and then in funds management, which um, uh, I've been doing for nearly 15 years now. We started this business around uh, 2008, 2009, in the midst of the financial crisis, uh, with a view to sort of where the opportunities might be in the investment world looking forward from that point in time, which was a very difficult, challenging time uh, in the investment landscape, but yielded some really great long-term opportunities. And I still sort of 15 years on feel like we're in the midst of one of those that's going to continue for another couple of decades. And Tom, I think you're pretty modest there about your background. I don't want to uh, focus or take away from your capability in the professional world and the financial world, which has been outstanding. But, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by 
high performance people and high achievers. And I'm not a sailor, but I live near a place where there's lots of sailors. And one of my mates out of swimming today says, oh, Tom King. He said that that guy pioneered the 470 class, which is in the high performance that went with that. He won gold on, on Australian soil, which is very difficult to do. I think he's got an order of Australia um, and, and set up this high performance unit that paved the way for Australia to dominate the class for the next 20 years. So he tells me, so it sounds like uh, you're, you're a great sailor. I used to be a great sailor a long time ago. It feels like another part of my life that <clears throat> finished um, quite deliberately after the Sydney Games. I never had sort of aspirations to make a career out of that. Went, went out on top. Yeah, it was a very, you know, very nice way to sort of step out of the boat after Sydney, sort of comfortable in my own mind that I'd done what I wanted to do and to move into the next phase of life, which was my professional career. But well, it, what did you... What would you say you've learned from that level of detail, attention, training, high performance that's held you in good stead or been very, very valuable for you in the funds management industry? Uh, we, I don't know how long we've got today. We could talk about this for hours because part of the reason I ended up in the industry I'm in now is there's some really interesting and quite clear parallels between sailing and what I do today. So sailing is a at that level, one design sailing at an international level is a very um, sort of complex, uh, competitive game played in an environment that is constantly changing against a large fleet of competitors and your success is very largely dictated by your ability to make good risk return judgments on a continual basis um, yeah, in an environment where you can, to some degree, predict what might happen in the future over longer time frames, but where there's a lot of volatility imposed over the top of that, and your actions are influenced by what other people are doing. And there's a very, yeah. very strong parallel. And if you look at sort of share price charts and wind direction charts, they're almost indistinguishable. And what you're trying to do is sort of get in at the right point and get out at the right point. And the, yeah, the, the frameworks for thinking about um, decision making, decision making, and yep. your knowledge of the future and how to apply that to making a decision now, and then your ability to do that when you're under a lot of pressure, which is the the skill that I had to have to succeed at the level that I did. Um, yeah, th there's a lot that can be taken from one to the other, and it was my um, interest in exploring that parallel that got me into funds management in the first place. And it confirmed what I'd thought that there was sort of some relevance to, um, what I'd learned out of sailing, uh, that I can apply in what I do. Today. And I'd, I'd imagine they're both environments where you can make the right decision, but the outcome may not turn out to be the optimal or most favorable. It just happens on that chance or that time. It didn't play out as statistically it should have. Very much so. Very much so. And that's a, you know, that's an important learning in sailing and in sport that in a game like sailing where it's not just one shot, you're playing it out over many legs of many races to get to the end. Um, you've got to keep trying to make the right sort of sensible, pragmatic decision all the time. But at the same time, you've got to recognize when it is right to take the risk. Our we had the privilege of working with a coach who's subsequently become Australia's most successful Olympic coach ever. He coached six gold medals in our event, starting with ours back in Sydney. And 
yeah, he had this sort of philosophy that you had to know at any point in time on any day sort of during a regatta, are you in a position where you, you can risk, you can't risk, or you must risk, which is an interesting philosophy. And, um, yeah, that's a sort of mindset you can apply to, to investment, knowing when and how much you should be, should be risking. But then, yeah, there's all sorts of other parallels around, um, what it's like to, be at a world leading level in what you're doing. The big thing in what we did, you know, from 1996 where I didn't go so well or didn't achieve my, the level I'd hoped to get to at the Olympics to winning in 2000, uh, having Victor join us and open our eyes to what the future of sailing was going to look like. Start thinking forward instead of looking at all of our competitors and looking at the the ones who were leading the fleet and try to emulate what they were doing, shifting the mindset to we're never going to win because that's what everyone else around us is doing as well, to what's this sport going to be like in 2004 or 2008 and how do we start sailing like that today because that's what we need to do if we're going to be ahead of the competition mm -hmm. at the next games. And that's a business philosophy that will probably resonate with a lot of people who've had Yep. success in other fields where the leaders have a vision of the future that the rest of the world don't have. And I think it's a sort of very important thing as a small business trying to get ahead in a big complicated industry like ours, you've got to have some sort of vision of how it is you're going where to compete it's going against and the hundred other fund managers out there trying to do the same thing. It reminds me of the uh, quote that's attributed to Wayne Gretzky, I believe, and they asked him, you know, why you're so successful and that he, he said that he skated to where the puck was going, not where it is. Um, before we focus on, you've touched on Anouk and your role there at the Chief Investment Officer, and I'm keen to understand how that's positioned, what works in that area. You mentioned you've got a background in mechanical engineering. Has that given you any learnings that you use today or is that a total uh, different kettle of fish? I don't think I, I, I directly use much of what I learned at university in my job today. In fact, I haven't really applied a lot of that um, through my career, um, you know, to, to do well in engineering, you've got to be sort of pretty good at, um, problem solving and applying solutions from one problem to another problem. And I think that's a skill that I've had sort of innately through my life that's still, still useful today. Um, but, but it probably more reflects my passion for understanding how the world works. So mm -hmm. I, I studied engineering because I wanted to, to, to understand how things worked. And at that point in time, that was a fairly narrow focus on mechanical things and things I could you know, tangibly get my head around. But uh, it's that sort of passion that interests me in what I do today. It's, it's understanding sort of how the world is solving its problems, understanding how all these technologies work and also understanding how the, the business that we are in works. And uh, it's taken me a long time, you know, 20 years, I guess, to sort of get to where I am now. But as I, as I learn and start to put together more pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, um, I feel like I can sort of understand what's going on and how to interpret that and how to use that in our, our job. And tell me about Nanook, you've touched on that. Um, what, what size of organisation of funds management is it? How, how much funds under advice, for instance? 
Uh, we've got about 650 million under management in a single um, fund, single strategy, mm-hmm. uh, which is a global equity strategy. And the headcount of the organisation? Uh, there's 12 of us in the business. So we have an investment team that's now six of us and we have three on the operational side and three on the distribution side. And how do you describe the ESG focus or, or, or that area? Ah, uh, this is the second rabbit hole we could go down for yeah, hours. So yeah. the, this term ESG, which is used very widely now this year, it's my um, hope that we could ban the use of it entirely because I think it's a in, incredibly confusing way of talking about um, a whole series of quite different things that um, firms like ours do that, that that lead to them being called ESG firms. So sorry, before as you, a reminder, you started Nanook in what year? Two thousand and nine. Okay, so you're well in front of this wave we're seeing now of everybody jumping on the bandwagon and the greenwashing and the net zero and everything else. You're skating to the puck to the puck back then. Yeah, yeah. We started the business because we felt at the time. Um, and it seemed clear to us at the time that the global economy had to adapt really significantly in coming decades, that you had population growth, you had economic growth, you had um, a whole series of sort of environmental constraints on that growth. Um, climate change is one of them, but you air pollution, land pollution and land degradation, ocean pollution, um, and increasing sort of resource scarcity and energy independence, interestingly, sort of issues in the world. And one way or another, something was going to give. And whether you believe in climate change or not, you're going to get to a point where that sort of, that, that tension becomes too much and things were going to change. And governments had started to recognise that and they were starting to put more support into facilitating a transition to something more sustainable. And we looked at that and thought, well, the investment markets aren't really recognising that at this point, and there's going to be some profound consequences from those kind of changes if and when they happen, and no one really is focused specifically on that. So we set the firm up to understand the nature of that transition, the risks that were around that for people's portfolios and just about any investment portfolio has a huge degree of risk embedded in it related to some of those transitions. And, and, and then to sort of understand what the opportunity set looked like and with a fairly conventional sort of fundamental valuation-based approach to try and exploit that opportunity set for our clients. And none of it had anything to do with what people call ESG. It wasn't a term that really became relevant to us until five or six years later when people started calling us an ESG fund and putting us in this bucket with a whole lot of other people doing mostly quite different things and trying to, you know, from our perspective, put a square peg in a round hole with, with our fund. We, we're an investment fund focused on delivering good investment outcomes from a opportunity set that relates to the long-term transition we think is happening and likely to continue to happen in the global economy. And how did you determine that opportunity set and what's in and what's out? It was, I mean, it's been our judgment and the way we've tried to define it is, you know, pragmatically, sort of we want to focus on an area that's sort of small enough and 
tractable enough for a firm like ours to get some, to generate some proper expertise and understanding, um, but broad enough and diversified enough that we can operate a useful investment product within that that universe. We started off looking just at clean energy and energy efficiency related mm-hmm. technologies, uh, but as soon as you do that, you start um, stepping sideways into related areas of technology and the way we ended up defining it was we, we, we want to invest in companies where a material part of their business relates to the sort of industry and technology areas that we're focused on. And, and those are industry and technology areas that are contributing to improving global environmental sustainability and resource efficiency, solving the sort of problems to make a, that are stopping us from becoming a better world. And, and it's it's obvious things like renewable energy and energy storage and grid technologies, um, uh, things like electric vehicles and uh, energy efficiency technologies in buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also look at um, a much broader range of efficiency-related technologies in industry, so robotics and industrial automation, things to do with the Internet of Things and connect- connected devices and networks and big data and AI um, we look at traditional areas of environmental investment, so water treatment, water infrastructure, waste management, recycling, sustainable materials, sustainable products, uh, and a little bit in healthcare technology, because if you're looking at the areas we're sort of already focused on, things like diagnostic technology, uh, automation and robotics, uh, connected devices, they're all technologies that are being pl- applied in the healthcare sphere today, a- and it's relevant for us to be looking at a sort of area there. So how has it worked? How are the results been? Good. So if you look, I mean, if you look over the period we've been operating, um, I think two things have happened that we would hope continue longer term. The the part of the market that we're focused on has outperformed the broader market by a couple of percent per annum over that period, which is a pretty meaningful sort of re- excess return to, to compound over time. And then within that space that we focus on, we've been able to stock pick in a way that has added value on the top of that. And um, it's been a challenging period over the last 12 months for strategies like ours focused on that particular part of the market. Um, but but I think you know, the prospects um, remain as they have been over the last decade, in fact, probably getting better right now, given what's happened with geopolitical tension and government policy and so on over the last 12 months, the outlook's very good that we can continue if we do a good job to, to deliver those kind of outcomes going forward. And Tom, how do you deal with the issue that people's opinions or values change around certain technologies and or outcomes where they may have been unacceptable in the past and now they may be acceptable and vice versa. And an example strikes me in the energy transition phase that, you know, I've heard and listened to a lot of people and read a lot about nuclear energy in the energy transition, um, you know, overall delivery. And you've got those people who will argue that, you know, nuclear was heavily influenced by Bob Dylan and the baby boomers and it got confused with the anti-nuclear weapons proliferation and most people on the street when they're asked about nuclear say, no, I don't want to think because they think about that weapon side of thing. Where there are others who are very environmentally focused that will say, well, actually, if we want to transition the energy grid um, to carbon zero, nuclear has to be in the mix there to get it at scale. 
and it makes a lot of sense to do it and we should be doing it. Um, how do you deal with something like that and, and what's your view on nuclear? Great question. Um, l- let me start by sort of going back to your question about ESG because um, part of the answer lies in that. So people, I think rightly, talk about us as an ESG fund, but the term ESG is very broad and covers a series of different sort of features or facets that investment products can offer. And um, we're a sustainably themed or sort of impact-oriented kind of fund within that, but you have ethical funds and you have engagement funds and you have low-carbon funds and you have traditional ESG funds that focus on companies with good management and and a whole lot of other things that aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Some, some of the, those features are and you can't be all things to all people. Um, from an ethical perspective, uh, because we focus on a lot of – because we focus on the industries that we do, we naturally don't invest in – areas like alcohol and tobacco and gaming. And those are things that we will never invest in. And we've formalized their exclusion out of our investment universe. If you were ever to find a renewable energy company that was brewing beer or something random like that, it won't, won't go in. Um, nuclear sort of weapons and defense and nuclear weapons and things are outside our remit. Um, but when, yeah, when you talk about nuclear energy, it's a great example of I think our attempt to be very pragmatic about what we do, um, we uh, recognise that there is no perfect solution. The world needs, um, we need a better world, not a perfect world. And the world can't wait for a perfect solution in order to try and resolve some of the big issues that it's got. And yeah, nuclear... um, is a very important technology in the energy landscape. It's a huge portion of existing generating capacity in a large number of countries around the world. And that generating capacity is low carbon. It's not without its environmental issues in terms of water usage and um, the uranium mining and processing. But compared to coal, it's it's good, right? from, from From a climate change perspective and carbon emissions compared to coal, it's good. Um, and it's really important if you want to lower carbon emissions in the future that we continue to use as much of that generating capacity as possible and not replace it with higher emission, um, solutions. If you take the nuclear out, you end up running more gas and coal and we shouldn't be doing that. And so we're supportive of, and always have been of continuing to, um, uh, yeah, operate those assets. Um, the new nuclear question is a different one. Um, and new nuclear is a, I mean, nuclear is a proven technology that can and will work well where it's deployed. Um, but at the end of the day, it's about economics and the the right solutions for the world today are, are the ones that are going to minimize the cost of transitioning to a better system in the future. And in my mind, there are big questions about the degree to which nuclear should play a role. And it's all about economics and cost. And the advocates will argue that, and there are a lot of people who are very sort of, you know, 
philosophically committed to the idea of nuclear um, <clears throat> will argue it's a solution we need and it's a good solution and they're right, but it might not be the cheapest solution. And um, because of the weight of sort of the opinions of that group and political support in lots of parts of the world, you are going to see new nuclear built that the, the supporters have enough uh, or are loud enough and have enough political support that people will invest a lot in new nuclear in coming decades. Um, and it's not really a bad thing, but my concern around that and my concern if Australia would want to go down that route is that it, economically it's not a particularly smart way of solving the problem. Um, they're very you, expensive and they take a long time to build. Yeah, they're extraordinarily expensive as a source of generation and the role or the gap that needs to be filled in electricity supply is actually um, not continuous baseload power, it's um, dispatchable power. It's power, you know, generation you can turn on and off that won't run all the time. And nuclear is very high capital cost, relatively low operating cost assets. And the cost, you know, the overall cost of running those assets and the electricity they generate goes up rapidly if you use them as dispatchable generation and they're not operating all the time. Um, so what's the better solution? Well, uh, the... You know, the, the, we're going to need more electricity generation. So electricity demand is going to grow quicker than GDP going forward. So you've got some energy efficiency measures that will reduce demand. But China, with electric, Southeast elect, Asia and India yeah, with all westernising. Electric vehicles and with electrification of a whole lot of fossil fuel applications, electricity demand is going to go up. We need more electricity. By far the cheapest sources of that are going to be solar and wind in just about all of the world. But you and, can't store it. Um, and yeah, the, the, the sort of experience is you can handle, depending on what your wind and solar resources are like, 70, 80, maybe even 90% solar and wind in a grid with some energy storage, um, but you can't get to 100% and you need to have dispatchable generation alongside that. And I mean, the reason that we, you know, want to build as much of the wind and solar is just economics. So the cost of the electricity that they generate might be three or four cents a kilowatt hour. If you build a nuclear reactor, it's going to be 30 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, and you take the renewables, you add um, better grid infrastructure, better software on the grid, um, demand response solutions, energy storage solutions on a sort of distributed basis as well as a centralised basis plus dispatchable generation. And you can make the system as a whole work much more cheaply than building a lot of nuclear. And that's why I'm cautious about what's going to happen. But because there is big support in the UK, in Korea, in parts of the US, you're going to see new nuclear built in coming years. There's going to be more investment in that area. And, um, and what sort of companies can you access or do you invest in to take advantage of that view? Um, at the moment, our, our I mean, our, our investment sort of philosophy is based around trying to find stocks that we will outperform um, because in the future, you know, th their profitability will justify valuations that are higher than what they're priced at today. And yeah, in a very general sense, um, 
mostly we're looking for opportunities where share prices have come down or, or aren't at elevated levels. They're not attracting a lot of investor attention for some reason, but the prospects looking forward are improving. And yeah, when we look at that sort of set of opportunities, the grid side of things is pretty interesting at the moment. Wind energy is also interesting. The wind industry has been through a very difficult period over the last three or four years. It's um, on a fairly widespread basis, loss making at the moment. The stocks have underperformed significantly over the last couple of years because of that, but the outlook is improving. The industry is improving. The um, uh, policies supporting um, more rapid deployment of wind around the world are likely to see the industry grow again in a way it hasn't for a while and there are opportunities there. And then, yeah, the other areas around grid technology. So grid infrastructure, um, high voltage transmission lines, the, um, the transformers and the um, sophisticated sort of statcoms and grid, hard, grid hardware that goes around making a, a grid function we'll, we'll need more of. Governments are starting to invest more heavily in those areas or support investment in those areas. And then the smart grid technology. So um, I mentioned before, demand response is one of the big um, sort of levers that can be pulled to make higher renewable penetration work. And demand response is where instead of supplying more electricity when there's more demand, when there's a shortage of supply, you send the price signal to consumers and people start turning their power usage down. And in order to make that happen, you need two-way communication on the grid. You need price signals to get to consumers and the hardware and software that's going to make that happen in the next decade um, is of real interest because that's economically one of the best ways of solving the intermittency problem. So when South Australia's spot electricity price goes to $10,000 a kilowatt hour, instead of running diesel generators and, uh, you know, having very high electricity costs that cause lots of problems, if you can tell people that if they turn their fridge off for half an hour or an hour, that they'll get paid to do that, it's a much better, more economically efficient solution. And what's some of the companies or names that have been big contributors or winners in the portfolio over time and since inception? And pleasingly, there's been a lot of different areas that have contributed to the fund's performance. So, so you'd hold normally at any one time how many names? It's a diversified fund, so somewhere between 60 and 70 stocks. Okay. Um, and that, and that's, So your weightings are what, between up 2 to, and 6%? Yeah, up to about 5% okay. at the maximum, and the smaller positions will be less than a percent in the mm -hmm. portfolio. And that's deliberate to... Um, provide diversified exposure across these different themes because they won't all perform well at the same time. And because we want to be able to invest in some of these more interesting areas, but at the end of the day, we all want to be able to sleep well at night. I want to be able to sleep well at night. You, the advisors want to be able to sleep well at night. We want our clients to sleep well at night. And we, and we want to have a portfolio that fills that role f f for people. Um, but yeah, since we started, we've done very well out of a uh, selection of different renewable energy stocks, businesses like SolarEdge and Sunrun that have become very prominent in recent years. We were investing in four or five years ago. We've done what, well. what sort of te technology do they have? What are their operations? Uh, SolarEdge is a global leader in uh, microinverters or you know, inverter technology for solar systems. Mm -hmm. um, and they had a competitively differentiated technology that allowed them to capture pretty significant market share. Um, Sun runs an interesting solar financing business that um, put 
put solar system or still put solar systems and now storage systems in people's homes uh, for no upfront cost. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done well out of um, wind stocks in the wind industry, um, but but it's not all renewable. So we've done well out of things like salmon farming seven and eight years ago when there was a big um, structural shift in that industry driven by, by regulation. Uh, we've done well out of waste management businesses as those uh, larger waste management businesses have started to apply better technology across their networks and seen their profitability um, improve. Um, there's a fairly broad range of interesting sort of technology type stocks in the semiconductor and uh, industrial automation space um, that we've done well out of. And then we have some, you know, interesting but pretty boring companies in there. So last year, the top performer in the fund was a business called Pearson, which is a publishing company in the UK that people might know for their education products and textbooks. But the interest there is that they have a huge repository of information that they publish that they're now putting online and then layering on top of that analytics and AI and data services that bring value to that data set and help businesses to operate more efficiently. Um, and, And so it's very broad and we'd hope that that'll continue. Um, we don't get to choose, you know, when, when any particular sort of sector might take off. So I, I can't tell you today what's going to work particularly well for us this year. Uh, but there's certainly a lot of things there today that look, you know, very interesting given that markets have underperformed and a lot of the sectors that we focus on have gone into fairly significant cyclical downturns and the stock prices tend to, to lead that. So we've seen you know, big stock price falls, but governments around the world, particularly in the EU and US, uh, putting in place very significant subsidy regimes that'll start to take effect in the next couple of years to drive growth in um, green hydrogen and electric vehicle deployment and um, grid infrastructure and you know water and um, sustainable infrastructure sort of upgrades across the economy. There's lots of areas that look like that to us at the moment. So, Tom, you, you talk a little bit there about the relative valuations where they, you know, in many people would have said that they were really extended. You've seen a huge weight of money come into this industry. Um, you know, in Australia here, we talk about the institutional investors, the the industry funds and all of these people. And in fact, today I've got a review with a client who's pulling two portfolio uh, managers out because they have, you know, half a percent and 0.75% exposure to alcohol and and the other one to tobacco straight out. So you're seeing a huge shift in capital and a lot of people saying, well, you know, that's led to really elevated valuations um, and, and it's hard to find things that you know, are, are meaningful good companies that you can buy at a reasonable price earnings multiple or a reasonable valuation. You've flagged that they've pulled back over the last 12 months because the market's come off. What sort of price earnings multiple will you enter companies at and it sits within the portfolio at the moment? It varies significantly depending on, you know, the characteristics of individual Companies, so the expected we, growth. Yeah, we, 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 you know, we have investments in some very boring, low-growth businesses. Um, usually, where we think things are going to improve and their profitability will improve, and we're buying things, you know, like that at seven or eight times PE. Um, we have companies in the portfolio that are 30, 40, 50 times PE, and even higher companies that don't have earnings today and don't have a PE. Um, you know, where we think the growth will justify the valuation. But at an overall level, so if you look at the whole portfolio, our 
sort of a- average valuation multiple of forward-looking earnings is about 14 times. So it's about in line with the broader market. Mm-hmm. Um, and the portfolio's earnings growth that we expect over the next two or three years is slightly higher than the market. And that's sort of typical of the portfolio that we've had over the time that we've been doing that. And we think if we can achieve that kind of balance, a, a portfolio that's priced broadly in line with the, the overall market, um, benign from a sort of style perspective, but is able to grow its earnings faster than the broader market, then that should lead, if we're right, to outperformance. Now, maybe we can talk as an example or a way to clarify for listeners how you think about that valuation and how far you're willing to stretch to get there on on growth. You know, if we look at a stock like Tesla, for instance, which has been very dominant or prominent in the electrical electric vehicle market. Um, we've had Kathy Wood on the podcast a couple of times from ARK Invest, who's been probably one of their biggest global sort of supporters. And I think I looked at a valuation of theirs where they, they supported a future valuation of $3,000 a share. But when you dug into the model and the valuation of it, it had them, you know, having a 55% or market share of an autonomous fleet of um, self-driving Uber-style Teslas, right, which seems, you know, a fair way off or a reasonably big leap from earnings today. How do you think about a company like Tesla? I mean, we, we've never owned Tesla and valuation's always been the issue. Tesla's an extraordinary business, extraordinary enterprise that's done an amazing job to get to where it is today. And you know, will no doubt continue to grow very significantly in, in coming years. Um, I guess our view is a little more circumspect than Cathy's. At the end of the day, um, you know, my, my view is that Tesla's a, is a car manufacturer. Um, and whilst it has um, earned some significant sort of competitive advantage through being the early mover in what it does and, and, you know, its investment in EV technology over the last decade gives us some edge from a cost perspective in the short term, um, longer term as an auto manufacturer, I think it's really unlikely that they sustain a high market share, anything, you know, uh, Toyota is the biggest car manufacturer in the world and they have a market share of about 10%. Um, I think it's extremely unlikely one in four people in the world is going to be buying a Tesla in, in 10 years' time. Um, so I don't think they're going to get to that. And then the whole concept of um, autonomous electric fleets of vehicle and full self-driving and the idea that because they can update software over the um, uh, over the air that people are going to be willing to pay significant amounts of subscription revenue to the company in order to continue getting these updates um, doesn't fit well with me. I, th- I think um, it's a very competitive industry and Tesla are not the only ones who are going to be able to do those things. And as soon as other auto manufacturers can, the competitive dynamic will mean that Tesla won't be able to charge for those things. And I think you're already seeing in recent months them having to cut pricing as demand has waned a little bit and supply from competitors have come through. I don't think they can sustain the kind of elevated margin advantage that they've had over their competitors longer term. But look, we could be wrong, but I, I, you know, rather than having a big bet and if we're wrong, it's going to end up being bad for the fund, we can not take a bet on that and 
um, it's not going to undermine our ability as a fund to deliver good returns. And we think the opportunities in other areas of the auto industry are much more compelling from a risk return basis. So we do have exposure to vehicle electrification. The larger of those positions at the moment is Hyundai Mobis, which is one of the larger companies in the Hyundai Kia group of companies. It's the main supplier of um, modules and systems that go into Hyundai and Kia cars. And it's the sole supplier of electric drivetrain modules for both Hyundai and Kia at the moment, and has one contracts to supply to the likes of Mercedes. And that's interesting to us because that part of their business is still slightly under 20% of the business, but last year grew 60% year on year as EV volumes within the group grew. And um, the company hasn't grown for a long period of time. It's been a sort of low growth, no growth cyclical business. It trades on about 10 times PE, about a third of its market caps in cash, and it owns um, or has has shareholdings in Hyundai and Kia that represent about 20 or 30% of its market cap. So if you strip those out, the thing's incredibly cheap. It hasn't grown and 20% of its business is now growing at 60% year on year in the EV space. And with the success of Hyundai and Kia's EV models, likely to continue growing. And we think the the downside in an investment like that's pretty limited. Um, but, but to the extent that that overall group does well in the EV space, which it is, and continues to grow, there's significant upside there. And Tom, how do you think about, um, you know, just to clarify, the fund doesn't short at all? No, it doesn't. We, we, we did run a hedge fund um, starting back about 10 years ago, uh, but that, that fund was closed a number of years ago. Okay. So you've got long-only positions. Are there any things that you see similar funds to yours doing or talking about or going into areas that were flagged Tesla as one of them, but are there any other areas of technology that you see that, well, I think they've got that wrong. We won't go near that. We see it all the time. If you look across the sort of landscape of things that we invest in, um, I mean, the one that comes to mind that I was looking at the other day was 3D printing, Mm -hmm. um, which has gone through an enormous sort of boom bust cycle, at least in the share market over the last three or four years. Um, and that cycle is a really good sort of illustration of a cycle that we've seen over and over in different sustainable technologies at different points in time. You get some catalyst for people thinking this is going to be the next big thing. Investors start to crowd into a small number of listed companies around the world that provide, you know, quite pure play exposure to those trends and the share prices get forced up. And often it's off the back of government policy announcements that are going to support the growth in those industries. But you end up with these companies that are good players in a little niche industry. Um, All of a sudden investors expecting that those businesses are going to grow at 20 or 30% per annum forever to grow into enormous total addressable markets and, and preserve these high margins that they had in these little niche industries and you extrapolate that all out and people can justify crazy valuations. Uh, and what ends up happening is as soon as the investment markets focus on those areas, the companies start raising money, other companies start coming into those industries and the companies do what the policy was intended, which was 
deploy more capital in that space to improve the technology or expand the capacity. And that happens and it brings competition and you end up with the pricing coming down and more commoditization in the industries. And eventually that cycle sort of unwinds and you can go and find it all across where, you know, the kind of things we focus on, these huge runs up in share prices, they peak and then it comes all the way back down again. And then in the subsequent two or three years, as the industries start to shake out, as the, you know, startups go broke or as the niche players um, consolidate the industry as it gets a bit bigger, the winners start to emerge and businesses that are laterally exposed to those trends or beneficiaries of those trends because they're component suppliers or they use the product that's being developed start to benefit from the trend. And it's in that sort of subsequent period that our strategy tends to be most successful. We we tend not to focus on the the prominent pure play names because and you've mentioned it a couple of times, you get these sort of crowding of ESG funds or of sustainably themed funds into the large cap pure play companies like Tesla, like Orsted in the offshore wind industry, and the valuations end up being extreme and very unlikely to be lived up to. But you get the lateral opportunities in companies yeah, with some of their business exposed to that trend where that may not be obvious to the market. Um, but over time will become and companies can re-rate and we can buy good profitable businesses that are going to grow their earnings in a way that the market's not not recognising. And Tom, I take it most of your investors are here in Australia. How do you think about currency uh, and or manager? So, yeah, most of our investors are here in Australia. The fund is unhedged, so it um, provides sort of exposure to, to foreign currency movements, um, which is obviously good. Uh, good if the Australian dollar is weakening because that will support returns, which is often what happens when equity markets are falling and can help sort of mute that effect. Um, not so the other way around. And when the dollar was down around 60 cents a few months ago, we've had some um, some of our clients come to us and say, could we provide a hedged version of what we do? And so we're hoping to do that in the coming months for investors who prefer to have that currency exposure hedged. And to, to sum up and finalise here and conclude, and thank you for your time. It's been terrific and very enlightening. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will really enjoy it. Um, can you maybe give some tips or some thoughts for many of the clients and families that we act for that are starting their journey on either impact or ethical investment or investment that's focused to do good? What are the common mistakes that you see investors entering into this area make? I think a lot of it has to do with clarity about what you're trying to achieve and go back to what I said earlier, ESG as a term is a big part of the problem here because people decide they want to be more ESG or do more ESG or invest in an ESG compliant way. And that doesn't actually mean anything. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so many different things that could mean that it doesn't mean anything at all. And I think it becomes quite simple if people can isolate what it is that's important to them. There is no right or wrong in this. If people want to invest in a more ethical manner and not touch particular types of um, company, that's people's you know remit to do that. And fund managers like me or other fund managers are in the business of providing solutions to people. And if you go looking for the solutions, you'll find them. So it's about understanding do, it, it, what. Is it that you don't want to invest in particular things or is it that you want to make sure some of your portfolio is invested in 
particular types of industries or all of it? Or And if you can clarify that, particularly if you can clarify it without using the word ESG or the term ESG or, you know, other things like impact or sustainability, if you can articulate that clearly, then it should be pretty simple to find the investment products you need to put together to build a portfolio that aligns with that. Terrific. Tom, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.